Yeah, we are back. We are doing it again. Doing it again. All right. Thank you for joining us for our second part uh, of what was going to be uh, Mark's Madness does a mini madness on conscientiousness. Now, Ooh, this was a yeah, minor. Do, do we want to talk about how stupid David is? No, no, no. David <laughs> had found what we thought was conscientiousness. And we thought it was like, yeah. I think it was a pretty solid thing. It was like third 25 pages or so. Uh, turns out that was just a excerpt of conscientiousness, which is its own full length work. So yeah. now, anyone who. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I had like a. A two-paragraph rundown of it in my head that I had gotten. I was told it was a short work, and I thought, like, you know, a few pages, that that makes sense. Okay. No, short meant, like, a hundred-something pages. That ain't happening. Yeah, I'm about to say, this is not Mark's Madness Does Conscientiousness, this series. Uh, it is, in fact, we do neocolonialism. So, right, so uh, no, con- we- no consciousism, but Nathan to the rescue. yes. Nathan, yeah, well, not Nathan to the rescue. We uh, have just decided uh, instead that we're going to read uh, the uh, a speech of Kwame Nkrumah's uh, to lead off, and then we will have our conversation around Pan-Africanism as well as two white men in Missouri can have a conversation about Pan-Africanism. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do our damnedest. Uh, and then, uh, as time permits, we will see where we're at, uh, and we will go from there with our lead up into neocolonialism. Yes. So, and, and to be fair, when we get in there, um, obviously to be a Pan-Africanist, you have to be African. So me and Nathan can't be Pan-Africanist, and our support for it doesn't matter. We're two stupid white dudes reading books, but that doesn't exactly. mean us supporting it. That doesn't mean us supporting it isn't good, and and that doesn't mean we don't support it. We're obviously doing this work because we do. Yes. Uh, so yes, we will get to that. And again, our explanation will just be for context for the ideology that underlines uh, the work that we are reading. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, let us start with I Speak of Freedom by Kwame Nkrumah. For centuries, Europeans dominated the African continent. The white man arrogated to himself the right to rule and to be obeyed by the non-white. His mission, he claimed, was to civilize Africa. Under this cloak, the Europeans robbed the continent of vast riches and inflicted unimaginable suffering on the African people. All this makes a sad story, but now we must be prepared to bury the past with its unpleasant memories and look to the future. All we ask of the former colonial powers is their goodwill and cooperation to remedy past mistakes and injustices and to grant independence to the colonies in Africa. It is clear that we must find an African solution to our problems, and that this can only be found in African unity. Divided, we are weak. United, Africa could become one of the greatest forces for good in the world. Although most Africans are poor, our continent is potentially extremely rich. Our mineral resources, which are being exploited with foreign capital only to enrich foreign investors, range from gold and diamonds to uranium and petroleum. Our forests contain some of the finest woods to be grown anywhere. Our cash crops include coca, coffee, rubber, tobacco, and cotton. As for power, which is an important factor in any economic development, Africa contains over 40% of the potential water of the world, as compared with about 10% in Europe and 13% in North America. Yet so far, less than 1% has been developed. This is one of the reasons why we have in Africa the paradox of poverty in the midst of plenty and scarcity in the midst of abundance. Can we do a break real quick to, to discuss? Because we've done, this has been, this is, woof, he's right to the point, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and and there's not much that's that's not disseminated there. Obviously, when he was talking about all we ask of the former colonial powers is their goodwill and blah, 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 right? That was kind of a statement of like, it does that you know it, it, that, that's kind of the secondary statement right it was the lead and it was the contrast to no we're going to unite as as africans that's we don't you know we don't care about what you colonial powers even want we're going to seize our own power and then he immediately gets into the very reason for colonization and the very reason that africa is and this is something parenti calls them says like you know africa is not poor africa is rich right yeah. Um, Africa the, is not underdeveloped, it's overexploited. Right, exactly. Um, this also makes sense because we talked about one of the big developments of uh, Nkrumah was the Akaroso uh, Dam, which to this day still provides most of the power to Ghana. 
Yeah. Uh, all right. So continuing on. Never before have a people had within their grasp so great an opportunity for developing a continent endowed with so much wealth. Individually, the independent states of Africa, some of them potentially rich, others poor, can do little for their people. Together, by mutual help, they can achieve much. But the economic development of the continent must be planned and pursued as a whole. A loose confederation designed only for economic cooperation would not provide the necessary unity of purpose. Only a strong political union can bring about the full and effective development of our natural resources for the benefit of our people. The political situation in Africa today is heartening and at the same time disturbing. It is heartening to see so many new flags hoisted in place of the old. It is disturbing to see so many countries of varying sizes and at different levels of development, weak and in some cases almost helpless. If this terrible state of fragmentation is allowed to continue, it may well be disastrous for us all. There are at present some 28 states in Africa, excluding the Union of South Africa and those countries not yet free. No less than nine of these states have a population of less than three million. Can we seriously believe that the colonial powers meant these countries to be independent, viable states? The example was South America, which has as much wealth, if not more, than North America, and yet remains weak and dependent on outside interests, is what one which every African would do well to study. Critics of African unity often refer to the wide difference in culture, language, and ideas in various parts of Africa. This is true. But the essential fact remains that we are all Africans and have a common interest in the independence of Africa. The difficulties presented by questions of language, culture, and different political systems are not in insuperable. If the need for political union is agreed by us all, then the will to create it is born. And where there's a will, there's a way. The present leaders of Africa have already shown remarkable willingness to consult and seek advice among themselves. Africans have indeed begun to think continentally. They realize that they have much in common, both in their past history, in their present problems, and in their future hopes. To suggest that the time is not yet ripe for considering a political union of Africa is to evade the facts and ignore realities in Africa today. The greatest contribution that Africa can make to the peace of the world is to avoid all the dangers inherent in disunity by creating a political union which will by also, by its success, stand as an example to a divided world. A union of African states will project more effectively than the African person will project more effectively the African personality. It will command respect from a world that has regard only for size and influence. The scant attention paid to African opposition to the French atomic tests in the Sahara and the ignominious spectacle of the UN in the Congo quibbling about constitutional niceties while the Republic was tottering into anarchy are evidence of the callous disregard of African independence by the great powers. We have to prove that greatness is not to be measured in stockpiles of atom bombs. I believe strongly and sincerely that with the deep-rooted wisdom and dignity, the innate respect for human lives, the intense humanity that is our heritage, the African race, united under one federal government, will emerge not as just another world block to flaunt its wealth and strength, but as a great power whose greatness is indestructible because it is built not on fear, envy, and suspicion, nor one at the expense of others, but founded on hope, trust, friendship, and directed to the good of all mankind." The emergence of such a mighty, stabilizing force in this strife-worn world should be regarded as, not as the shadowy dream of a visionary, but as a practical proposition which the peoples of Africa can and should translate into reality. There is a tide in the affairs of every people when the moment strikes for political action. Such was the moment in the history of the United States of America when the Founding Fathers saw beyond the petty wranglings of the separate states and created a union. This is our chance. We must act now. Tomorrow may be too late, and the opportunity will have passed, and with it, the hope of free Africa's survival. And, and this, that is I Speak of Freedom by Kwame Nkrumah. Yes, and that is a, a brilliant speech, and it, it's, it's exactly, you know, where it means a lot to us here, because it, it lays out Pan-Africanism so incredibly well, right? There are so many pre-existing states that have done this so many times before, and whether they're reactionary uh, or they're socialist, right? Whether they're good or bad for the world, 
they have conglomerated and and that's gained power and it's worked across cultures, right? Uh, the settler colony that is the United States is a united set of states under one federal government, and that has led to immense power and, unfortunately, immense ability to expand and become an empire. Uh, again, you know, with the reactionary states, Italy forming together as Italy, right? That that took it from kind of the the, the ass end of of European squabbles that everybody kind of fought over, other than. Uh, the southern Slavic states and made it one of the big powers, right? And there is a reason it, it rose to like being one of the Axis powers in World War II. And on the less reactionary side, you have anything from the Soviet Union, which was a union of socialist Soviet republics that ranged anywhere from the Caucasus uh, to Eastern Europe, uh, anything east of, of the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and then, of course, you know, today still we have China. Um, and China is a myriad of cultures and states. That's where we've talked about the different autonomous regions uh, for the different ethnicities, you know. I mean, it's not just Han people. There's Wei people. There's Uyghur people. Uh, there's Tibetans. There's, there's, there's 54 ethnicities, and there's specific regions that are heavy in eth- ethnicities and given specific autonomy, like Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia. And... They make that work. And so, of course, you know, Africa is going to be a myriad of different cultures and languages and religions. It is an enormous continent. But what those cultures have together is they're not brutal colonizing cultures like you see coming out of Europe and in the settler colonies. The wealth across the continent is extreme. But it's concentrated into pockets, and the pockets have varying degrees of wealth and varying resources they are wealthy in, whereas the continent united is wealthy in everything, which is why the whole continent gets so deeply colonized and and so um, held back by the West to stay weak and to continue to be extracted from. Um, and, and again, you know, like you said, it can't just be an economic cohesion. It has to be a total political unity to give them power if they're totally united right now they can be united behind one cooperative ideology now they have strength in numbers they have strength in land resources they have strength in land itself you can't just attack one spot right you take away the entire idea behind divide and conquer and of course all of these unities are difficult they have contradictions but they are incredibly beneficial, and that's probably time then to transition to a little bit of what Pan African is, and and hopefully that laid laid some seeds and 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 made it made it pretty simple. Okay, yeah, it seems like a pretty high level high level. I mean, that speech seems like a very high level, I you know, mm-hmm. surface level understanding of what the core of Pan Africanism is going to be. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I know, I believe it's London-based. There's the the center of uh, Pan-African thought. Um, And according to them, right, there's um, the idea of Pan-Africanism is rooted in uh, four elements. Okay. Um, Let me see my... Oh, now I got to find my notes. Oh, there we go. I'm sorry. It has four components. (laughs) Four components for for Pan-Africanism. Um... It's politically materialist. It's ideologically humanist. It politically must have a state, one large African state for all of Africa. And economically, it's communal and industrialized. And these are all things we'll see in Ghana. We talked about, you know, the entire British region, you know, Nkrumah wouldn't walk away from, right? He he wanted that whole thing to be Ghana. He wasn't going to walk away with just the Gold Coast, you know, that doesn't mean he was going to, like, not do socialism and not take Ghana unless it was all of Africa. You know, there's there's a certain degree where you've got to be practical and, and socialism in one country this. But, you know, as much as you can, don't don't accept these sacrifices that are, are on arbitrary, divided borders. You know, I mean, this is what Nkrumah almost walked out of the OAU from, right? 
um, is is the fact that they, they left the old borders and all these different disparate countries, and that, that breaks apart Pan-Africanism. It should be the Africans themselves defining where the states and regions are to handle these different histories of colonization that are all interrelated, these different cultures, these different religions, um, and these different you know material strengths and weaknesses as, as far as resources and distribution of resources and things like that while having one central, federal, unified government. Um, but, but basically, Pan-Africanism, it's, it's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's that all Africans are united. They're united in one big cause um, that they've been colonized, and they will only end the colonization by taking power for themselves. Uh, one big example, of the course, they, they take is Haiti, right? Haiti, in Haiti the slaves revolted, and, and the uh, uh, black slaves, the formerly African slaves, all took that over right and to a pan-africanist those are all africans they're united in that struggle right and and you know jamaicans and americans and anyone who is descended from africa is is an african in the struggle and they need to control their land politically and the land they need to control is africa and it needs to be one large unified africa and like he said it needs to be politically unified right it needs to be one administrative centralized government that addresses everybody's needs and resolves the contradictions it needs to be one huge power when it's it's um challenged it needs to be one economy that takes advantage of the immense resources and that makes sense right like if ghana has an incredible you know amount of water power but like you know um Angola does not, and Angola needs power. <laughs> they can figure out how to distribute that, right? They can figure out, okay, does Angola need to be on fossil fuels? Does it need to find a way to pull the power from Ghana's water power or probably something closer? You know, whatever it is. I don't know why I went straight to Angola when, like, the Ivory Coast is right there. My, my brain is gush, but you get the idea. All right. So, again, this has to be one large African nation. Um, it also realizes that all societies exist within nature, right? And nature is the land. Nature is the air. Uh, nature is water. Um, it's it's you know the animals that that live upon it. It's it's all of those things, right? Um, and you know the relationships with nature and the relationships with other people are what make a society, right? You can't have a society unless it lives in the nature and it, that it exists, and you can't have a society unless people are relating to each other and the plants and the animals and the things that are there. So this is very, very conscious of nature. Um, and it's conscious that, that people are conscious, right? People are different from nature. People make tools. People control fire. People do all these things. But they're still part of nature, you know, when we say like people, you know, they, they say Africans belong to the land. They need the land to survive. The land is is the source of resources. They're very much they're contained in nature. Right. And so it's people and nature working in cooperation. Uh, it's also people, of course, going to cooperate with each other. Um, like we've discussed, you know, Pan-Africanism believes itself to be humanist. Right. And it puts people first, people over profits. Um. And then it needs to be industrialized. And this was a huge thing of Nkrumah's. You know, we talked about the gliding school. We talked about uh, the Akarosa Dam. Um, of course, industrialized, you know, cocoa exports. Um, I mean, these are all things, if you're not industrialized, you're going to be behind. That is one of the things where we said, you know, um, Africa is not underdeveloped. It's overexploited. But one of the ways to make sure it's overexploited is to control its development and intentionally underdevelop it. So if Africans are going to take back control of their land and their natural resources, they need to develop that infrastructure, right? They need to develop that industrialism. And then they need to work at it collectively, and they need to be egalitarian. They need to be looking out for each other, okay? Um, and this is something, this is not new to Africans. You know, Africa not only was rich, but it's it's had extremely powerful nations. It's accomplished things that that no other nation, you know, has accomplished, right? It, it knew the universe revolves once every 26,000 years before anyone else discovered that, right? Um, Africans invented calendars. Africans, you know, modern, historic, any era 
have incredible scientific accomplishments. Um, Africans are, you know, have proven that they can do this by themselves. They've just had their land stolen away by violence, and they've had their development hindered intentionally by violence for exploitation. And that's what needs to be undone. That's what needs to be rejected. The violent settler colonialism and the violent neocolonialism needs to be booted out. And Africa needs to develop so that it can be truly independent as one nation. Okay. So a uh, little bit of a primer. Uh, thank you so much, David, for, for, for that background and for that research on, on our intro for Pan-Africanism. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, it's book time. Oh, yeah, buddy. It's time to start the book. Confetti falls. It's good times. Um, I don't know what that noise was. So we're, I don't know what that noise was either. So starting at the beginning, introduction for neocolonialism by Kwame Nkrumah. The neocolonialism of today represents imperialism in its final and perhaps its most dangerous stage. In the past, it was possible to convert a country upon which a neocolonial regime had been imposed, Egypt in the 19th century as an example, into a colonial territory. Today, this process is no longer feasible. Old-fashioned colonialism is by no means entirely abolished. It still continues an African problem, but it it is everywhere on the retreat. Once a territory has become nominally independent, it is no longer possible, as it was in the last century, to reverse the process. Existing colonies may linger on, but no new colonies will be created. In place of colonialism as the main instrument of imperialism, we have today neo-colonialism. Hey, he said the thing in the thing. He did the title in the work. Title screen. Boom. The essence of neocolonialism is that the state which is subject to the state which is subject to it is, in theory, independent and has all the outward trappings of international sovereignty. In reality, its economic system and thus its political policy is directed from outside. The methods and form of this direction can take various shapes. For example, in an extreme case, the troops of an imperial power may garrison the territory of neocolonial of the neocolonial state and control the government of it. More often, however, neocolonialist control is exercised through economic or monetary means. The neocolonial state may be obliged to take the manufactured products of the imperialist power to the exclusion of competing products from elsewhere. Control over government policy in the neocolonial state may be secured by payments toward the cost of running the state. By the provision of civil servants in positions where they can dictate policy and by monetary control over foreign exchange through the imposition of a banking system controlled by the imperial power. Where neocolonialism exists, the exercising control is often the state which formerly ruled the territory in question, but this is not necessarily so. For example, in the case of South Vietnam, the formal imperial power was France, but neocolonial control of the state has now gone to the United States. It is possible well, it is possible that neocolonial control may be exercised by a consortium of financial interests which are not which are not specifically identifiable with any particular state. The control of the Congo by great international financial concerns is a case in point. The result of neocolonialism is that foreign capital is used for the exploitation rather than for the development of the less developed parts of the world. Investment under neocolonialism increases rather than decreases the gap between the rich and the poor countries of the world. The struggle against neocolonialism is not aimed at excluding the capital of the developed world from operating in less developed countries. It is aimed at preventing the financial power of the developed countries being used in such a way as to impoverish the less developed. Non-alignment, as practiced by Ghana and many other countries, is based on cooperation with all states, whether they be capitalist, socialist, or have a mixed economy. Such a policy, therefore, involves foreign investment from capitalist countries, but it must be invested in accordance with a national plan drawn up by the government of the non-aligned state with its own interest in mind. The issue is not what return the foreign investor receives on his investments. He may, in fact, do better for himself if he invests in a non-aligned country than if he invests in a neocolonial one. The question is one of power. A state in the grip of neocolonialism is not master of its own destiny. 
It is this factor which makes neocolonialism such a serious threat to world peace. The growth of nuclear weapons has made uh, out of date the old-fashioned balance of power which rested upon the ultimate sanction of a major war. Certainty of mutual mass destruction effectively prevents either of the great power blocks from threatening the other with the possibility of a worldwide war, and military conflict has thus been confined to limited wars. For those, neocolonialism is the breeding ground. Such wars can, of course, take place in countries which are not neocolonialist controlled. Indeed, their object may be to establish in a small but independent country a neocolonialist regime. The evil of neocolonialism is that it prevents the formation of those large units which would make impossible limited war. To give one example, if Africa was united, no major power block could attempt to subdue it by limited war, because from the very nature of limited war, what can be achieved by it is itself limited. It is only where small states exist that it is possible, by landing a few thousand marines or by financing a mercenary force to secure a decisive result. The restriction of military action of limited wars is, however, no guarantee of world peace is likely to be the factor which will ultimately involve the great power blocks in a world war. However, much both are determined to avoid it. Yeah, so... Limited... Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I mean, we're <laughs> we're getting really rich here because he is, he is to the point. Um, this is almost like reading Stalin. It's just so laid out in plain language, right? Um, yeah. there's, there's no messing around. There's no highbrow theory. It's very simple, right? Oh yeah, they can have garrisons. This is not ruling out military control, but this also allows them to bully by finance. And there's multiple ways they can bully by finance. They can throw up a puppet state or they can control a totally independent state's banks or they can just make a state not make it into a puppet state by making it totally economically subservient. And by doing this, they allow it to, you know, weaken its power. And this even talks about, you know, the effect of nuclear weapons, right? The nuclear weapons essentially stop another world war. But they also mean that because another world war is stopped, no, everyone's so afraid of the destruction that they're playing things out in, in these other little like smaller war games that make turmoil of these smaller countries because these smaller countries can't get strong and be big and fight back and establish their own power, right? They, everyone's kind of afraid to intervene if one is attacked and it's it once they're once they're small, once they're weakened, it's very easy to go in and topple them over. You know, uh, this is why the United States. You know, so easily topped or toppled Iraq and why they're so angry that Iran exists because Iran is a bit. I mean, we don't think of it because they're not a nuclear power and because they're not like a, a headlining, you know, colonial or socialist um, power that that's got a huge economy. But Iran is a very strong country and that's a huge threat because you can't just send in a few thousand troops and occupy it for 20 years, right? Um, you know, something yeah. we, we may get into uh, if we just, you know, decide to, to get back into current events uh, here soon is, you know, the recent coup in Sudan or the uh, kind of the fuckery of backing the, the P- TPLF uh, against Ethiopia right now. Um, something we just saw was, was Syria. You know, I mean, once these states are weakened, then you can have these little proxy wars. And that's what the Cold War was. And it makes the non-aligned movement make a lot more sense, right? They're not necessarily part of the socialist bloc. Not that they don't want to be, but that they're not big and powerful enough to be. And they can't just get thrown to the dogs as a proxy. And so it's, you know, openly uh, side with the colonizers. You can't do that. You'll never develop. And you'll get toppled and destroyed and completely manipulated and made poorer and poorer and poorer. It's join the socialists, but then, you know, the threat of proxy, you being a proxy war target is, is huge or be non-aligned and, and make that non-aligned collective and kind of work with everyone, uh, in order to advance yourself until you're big enough and strong enough that you could be, uh, you know, a pole in a multipolar world and, and you can have this strength and you can not just be, you know, a sacrificial lamb, um, of nuclear tension and cold war. Yeah. Limited wars, once embarked upon, achieve a momentum of their own. Of this, the war in South Vietnam is only one example. It escalates despite the desire of the great power blocks to keep it limited. 
While this particular war may be prevented from leading to a world conflict, the multiplication of similar limited wars can only have one end, world war and the terrible consequences of nuclear conflict. Neocolonialism is also the worst form of imperialism. For those who practice it, it means power without responsibility, and for those who suffer from it, it means exploitation without redress. In the days of old-fashioned colonialism, the imperial power had at least to explain and justify at home the actions it was taking abroad. In the colony, those who served the ruling imperial power could at least look to its protection against any violent move by their opponents. With neocolonialism, neither is the case. Above all, neocolonialism, like colonialism before it, postpones the facing of the social issues which will have to be faced by the fully developed sector of the world before the danger of world war can be eliminated and the problem of world poverty resolved. Neocolonialism, like colonialism, is an attempt to export the social conflicts of the capitalist countries. The temporary successes of this policy can be seen in the ever-widening gap between the richer and poorer nations of the world. But the internal contradictions and conflicts of neocolonialism make it certain that it cannot endure as a permanent world policy. How it should be brought to an end is a problem that should be studied, above all, by the developed nations of the world, because it is they who will feel the full impact of the ultimate failure. The longer it continues, the more certain it is that its inevitable collapse will destroy the social system of which they have made it a foundation. The reason for its development is the, in the post-war period can be briefly summarized. The problem which faced the wealthy nations of the world at the end of the Second World War was the impossibility of returning to the pre-war situation in which there was a great gulf between the few rich and the many poor. Irrespective of what particular political party was in power, the internal pressures in the rich countries of the world were such that no post-war capitalist country could survive unless it became a welfare state. There might be differences in degree in the extent of the social benefits given to the industrial and agricultural workers, but what was everywhere impossible was a return to the mass unemployment and the low level of living of the pre-war years. From the end of the 19th century onwards, colonies had been regarded as a source of wealth which could be used to mitigate the class conflicts in the capitalist states, and as will be explained later, this policy had some success. But it failed in its ultimate object because the pre-war capitalist states were so organized internally that the bulk of the profit made from colonial possessions found its way into the pockets of the capitalist class and not into those of the workers. Far from achieving the object intended, the working class parties at the time tended to identify their interests with those of the colonial peoples, and the imperialist powers found themselves engaged upon a conflict on two fronts, at home with their own workers and abroad against the grieving forces, growing forces of colonial liberation. The post-war period inaugurated a very different colonial policy. A deliberate attempt was made to divert colonial earnings from the wealthy class and use them instead to finance the quote-unquote welfare state. As will be seen from the examples given later, this was the method consciously adopted even by those working class leaders who had, before the war, regarded the colonial peoples as their natural allies against their capitalist enemies at home. At first, it was presumed that this object could be achieved by maintaining the pre-war colonial system. Experience soon proved that attempts to do so would be disastrous and would only provoke colonial wars, thus dissipating the anticipated gains from the continuance of the colonial regime. Britain, in particular, realized this at an early stage, and the correctness of the British judgment at the time has subsequently been demonstrated by the defeat of French colonialism in the Far East and Algeria, and the failure of the Dutch to retain any of their former colonial empire. The system of neocolonialism was therefore instituted, and in short run it has served the developed powers admirably. It is in the long run that its consequences are likely to be catastrophic for them. Neocolonialism is based upon the principle of breaking up former larger united colonial territories into a number of small, non-viable states, which are incapable of independent development and must rely upon the former imperial power for defense and even internal security. Their economic, their economic and financial systems are linked, as in colonial days, with those of the former colonial ruler. At first sight, the scheme would appear to have many advantages for the developed countries of the world. All the profits of neocolonialism can be secured if, in any given era, a reasonable proportion of the states have a neocolonialist system. It is not necessary that they, should all, that they all should have one. 
Unless small states can combine, they must be compelled to sell their primary products at prices dictated by the developed nations and buy their manufactured goods at the prices fixed by them. So long as neocolonialism can prevent political and economic conditions for optimum development, the developing countries, whether they are under neocolonialist control or not, will be unable to create a large enough market to support industrialization. In the same way, they will lack the financial strength to force the developed countries to accept their primary products at fair price. Yeah. That is a very clear. Oh, yeah, I, was gonna, I, I was about to agree that that was that that laid out exactly that laid out exactly the purpose of balkanization that laid out exactly why you have to add these countries weak that laid out exactly what neocolonialism is all about and why the U.S. has, you know, 800 bases all around the world and, and has an army base basically everywhere, how the CIA works, right? All, all of these things, you know, um, and, and we saw, you know, France did take it on the chin. Right after after World War Two and yeah. its its colonization, but then we saw in the United States we saw the New Deal, uh, in in England we saw Keynesianism, um, and you know that's where you get like their their healthcare system in, in England and and things like that. You know, the, these social welfare states built on the destruction and exploitation of the global South, and that's important. You know that that's a, something we see now. You know why why we can't just accept. Uh, social democrats going well medicare for all that's all i care about like well where is that coming from do you think that's going to make you more powerful yeah i mean ask ask england right how how well that they're not facing you know or how well um um, austerity went for them they hit austerity right like i mean that's not gonna last forever and it's brutal and horrible for most of the population of the planet and it keeps the system in place all it does is strengthen the system by throwing a few breadcrumbs inside the metropole and it's breadcrumbs inside the metropole by crushing your fellow workers and keeping them weak yep In the neocolonialist territories, since the former colonial powers has, in theory, relinquished political control, if the social conditions occasioned by neocolonialism cause a revolt, the local neocolonialist government can be sacrificed and another equally subservient one substituted in its place. (laughs) On the other hand, oh yeah, we've seen that how many times? Yeah, exactly. Something underlying here too, and I'm sure he's he's getting at that, but he, he hasn't made clear. He's just heavily implied is one of the things holding up these neocolonial relations is you're creating a colonized bourgeoisie so now instead of having these two distinct classes right you have bourgeoisie and proletariat and they're after each other and then you have colonized and colonizing country you essentially have like this layer of contradictions you have of course a colonizing bourgeoisie who are entirely in the interest of upholding colonialism and a colonized proletariat who are entirely in the interest of overthrowing the yoke of colonialism and capitalism. And in between, you have a colonized bourgeoisie who is happy, happy to collaborate, uh, even though they're totally disposable. Um, And then you have, you know, a, a colonizing proletariat who gets social programs and benefits from the suffering of colonization and from the weakening of, of workers overseas. And so, you know, life for a poor American may be better than life for someone in, in say, a non-aligned country in, in Africa. And you go, well, they've got socialism. What What's so great? You know, I've got capitalism here and even my poor are great. But then you go to these capitalist countries, these neo-colonized countries in the global south, and it's, oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, indeed. On the other hand, in any continent where neocolonialism exists on a wide scale, the same social pressures which can produce revolts in neocolonial territories will also affect those states which have refused to accept the system, and therefore neocolonialist nations have a ready-made weapon with which they can threaten their opponents if they appear successfully to be challenging the system. These advantages, which seem at first sight so obvious, are, however, on examination, illusory because they fail to take into consideration the facts of the world today. The introduction of neocolonialism increases the rivalry between the great powers, which was provoked by the old-style colonialism. However, little real the power the government of a neocolonialist state may possess, it must have, from the very fact of its nominal independence, a certain area of maneuver. It may not be able to exist without a neocolonialist colonialist master, but it may still have the ability to change masters. 
the ideal neocolonialist state would be one which was wholly subservient to neocolonialist interests, but the existence of the socialist nations makes it impossible to enforce the full rigor of the neocolonialist yeah, system. Yeah, let's, let's talk about this for a second, too, in a, in a real uh, case, right? You know, because he's, he's directing mm-hmm. a lot of this, not only in broad observations, as he colonized people and across Africa and all these colonized nations, but also, and, and one thing we got in the background of imperialism and stuff and talked about World War One, we didn't really get into that this book was written during the war in, in, in Vietnam, but I, I don't think people are, are totally, uh, uh, need an introduction to that as much as, as, as we think, um, if they're listening yeah. to us this far. Um, but... You know, I mean, he's seeing this in, in Vietnam, but something we see today, right, is, you know, used to be, and this is exactly what we talked about, used to be like French would would claim a colony, right? Well, maybe the Spanish want that colony, and then they would fight over it. They're competing. Spain doesn't care if France loses that colony, because now it's another opportunity to colonize it. They're at war. They're fighting each other over this. And this was, of course, a big part of the World Wars. This, we just talked about World War One came after the scramble for Africa. You know, the scramble for Africa is probably the primary reason for World War One, and that's why I really wanted to emphasize the fighting, specifically the the catalysts in in Morocco. Uh, when everybody thinks of of you know the black hand bombings, um, in or black hand bombing in Sarajevo is, is the spark when when so much of it has to do with colonial infighting amongst the great powers. Well, now that there's this neo-colonialism, now they have this cooperative interest, which makes it really, really easy for a hegemony to emerge conveniently for the United States, hint, hint, wink, wink, because now they all kind of have each other's interest, right? The, the United States and France and Great Britain don't care who's controlling a country, as long as that's control, the country is weak and able to be colonized, and they can all get in on it, right? They can all get their their bank loans in. They can all get their their you know chocolate companies in in having slaves pick cocoa beans. You know they can all uh, get their their minerals for cheap from from overexploited miners. You know they they can all do uh, and miners. I mean like mining, but of course you know they they exploit child labor too. It's, confusing in just audio there but anyway you know i mean they they don't care as long as they they don't care who they're exploiting as long as they're getting their minerals they can work together and so it doesn't matter that you know great britain um drew up the west asia and created you know saudi arabia and israel and and they're primarily the united states puppet state now they don't care. They're they're happy that that Israel and Saudi Arabia are Western puppets. You know, they they're they're more than happy with that. It doesn't really matter to them. It's about the social relations, about the economic dependency. It's about the lack of power. It's about the ability to flip leadership, and it's about the serving of their interests to control resources everywhere. Exactly. The existence of an alternative system is itself a challenge to the neocolonialist regime. Warnings about the dangers of communist subversion are likely to be the two-edged since they bring to the notice of those living under a neocolonialist system the possibility of a change of regime. In fact, neocolonialism is the victim of its own contradictions. In order to make it attractive to those upon whom it is practiced, it must be shown as capable of raising their living standards. But the economic object of neocolonialism is to keep those standards depressed in the interest of the developed country. It is only when this contradiction is understood that the failure of innumerable aid programs, many of them well-intentioned, can be explained. In the first place, the rulers of neocolonialist states deprive, derive their authority to govern not from the will of the people, but from the support which they obtain from their neocolonialist master. They have therefore little interest in developing education. They have strengthening the bargaining power of their workers employed by expatriate firms or indeed of taking any step which would challenge the colonial pattern of commerce and industry, which is which it is the object of neocolonialism to preserve. Aid, therefore, to a neocolonial state is merely a revolving credit paid by the neocolonial master, passing through the neocolonial state and returning to the neocolonial master in the form of increased profits. Secondly, it is the field of aid that the it is in the field of aid that the rivalry of individual developed states must first manifest itself. So long as neocolonialism persists, so long will spheres of interest persist. And this makes multilateral aid, which is in fact the only effective form of aid, impossible. 
Once multilateral aid begins, the neocolonialist masters are faced with the ho- by the hostility of the vested interests in their own country. Their manufacturers naturally object to any raise to any attempt to raise the price of the raw materials which they obtain from the neocolonialist territory in question, or to establish or to the establishment therefore thereof manufacturing industries which might compete directly or indirectly with their own exports to the territory. Even education is as likely is suspect as likely to produce a student movement, and is it is, of course, true that in many less developed countries, the students have been in the vanguard of the fight against neocolonialism. In the end, the situation arises that the only type of aid which the neocolonialist master considers as safe is military aid. Once a neocolonialist territory is brought to such a state of economic chaos and misery that revolt actually breaks out, and only then, is there no limit to the generosity of the neocolonial overlord? Provided, of course, that the funds are supplied, that the funds supplied are utilized exclusively for military purposes. Military aid, in fact, marks the last stage of neocolonialism, and its effect is self-destructive. Sooner or later, the weapons supplied pass into the hands of the opponents of the neocolonialist regime, and the war itself increases the social misery which originally provoked it. We've seen that story before. I was going to say, I'm, I'm so mad we waited this long to read this book. <laughs> I'm so mad. It's, it's on the nose, buddy. It's on the nose. Uh, neocolonialism is a millstone around the necks of the developed countries which practice it. It will drown them. Previously, the developed powers could only escape from the contradictions of neocolonialism by subsisting for its, substituting for it direct colonialism. Such a solution is no longer possible, and the reasons for it have been well explained by Mr. Owen Lattimore, the United States Far Eastern expert and advisor to Chiang Kai-shek in the immediate post-war period. He wrote, Asia, which was so easily and swiftly subjugated by conquerors in the 18th and 19th centuries, displayed an amazing ability to stubbornly ability stubbornly to resist modern armies equipped with airplanes, tanks, motor vehicles, and mobile artillery. Formerly, big territories were conquered in Asia with small forces. Income, first of all, from plunder, then from direct taxes, and lastly from trade, capital investments, and long-term exploitation, covered with incredible speed the expenditure for military operations. This arithmetic represented a great temptation to strong countries. Now they have run up against another arithmetic, and it discourages them. The same arithmetic is likely to apply throughout the less developed world. This book is, therefore, an attempt to examine neocolonialism, not only in its African context and its relation to African unity, but in world perspective. Neocolonialism is by no means exclusively an African question. Long before it was practiced on any large scale in Africa, it was an established system in other parts of the world. Nowhere has it proved successful, either in raising the living standards or in ultimately benefiting the countries which have indulged in it. Marx predicted that the growing gap between the wealth of the possessing classes and the workers it employs would ultimately produce a conflict fatal to capitalism in each individual capitalist state. The conflict between rich and poor has now been transferred onto the international scene, but for proof of what is acknowledged to be happening, it is no longer necessary to consult the classical Marxist writers. The situation is set out with the utmost clarity in the leading organs of capitalist opinion. Take, for example, the following extracts from the Wall Street Journal. Guys, it's back. Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week. Opinion of the week. <laughs> and Kruma beat me to it. I I didn't I didn't even get to comment on how we used the US advisor to Chiang Kai Chek to to expose things. And for especially with the, the fact that again, back to current events, the US is escalating in Taiwan now. Um but then all of a sudden we get Wall Street Journal opinion piece of the week out of fucking nowhere. I'm so excited. But guys, teaser. Next up, we're going to next week we're going to lead off with the Wall Street Journal oh. opinion piece of the week. But not this week because this is the end of our story for today. Uh this has been a little bit of an all over the place episode. We started with oh, uh reading it's of been a, a mess. That's great. <laughs> Started with the fun reading of a uh, of a, a speech by Nkrumah, then we moved on to our analysis of Pan Africanism, and we finished up by starting the dang book. Woo! Uh, yes. So that being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. 
uh, when you want to reach out to us for any reason, because uh, we read a thing wrong or you have input that you think would be useful to us, which we are always welcome for, uh, you can send that over to marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Or you could send that to us on Twitter. I don't know why you'd send it on Twitter. It seems weird. That's that's a hellscape. And you're limited in characters. It's just not great. But you can send it in DMs if you'd like to. Our DMs are open uh, to at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, if, however, you would like a more uh, long-form conversation and a more day-to-day hangout vibe with the fun people, uh, you can absolutely join our Discord server, Mark's Madness Pod Discord. Our link is in our Twitter bio. Uh, if you don't want to use Twitter because you're a better person than I am, uh, feel free to email us, and we'll send you that link right away. No problem at all. Um, but that, yeah, that's where we we have more long-form discussions. We talk about everything. We, we play a lot of Final Fantasy XIV, and uh, we have a book club, a separate book club to this book club we got book clubs within book clubs it's book club inception uh and that book club is currently reading uh how uh, it, uh, apropos to this work how europe underdeveloped africa uh by walter oh, rodney there you go. so a yes. uh, great one to jump in on if you're reading along with this work and want even more uh in in how europe has been constantly fucking africa since the dawn of time uh that being said david it's time for a disclaimer Oh, boy. Okay, so way back when, uh, when Nathan and I were reading Capital, um, he, he basically asked me, said, hey, you've read Capital before, let's read it together. Which is good, because that's a book you want to read in a group and, and discuss. Uh, and so we started reading it, and we thought, well, what the hell, we got recording equipment, let's record it, maybe we can turn it into a podcast, make a group a little bigger than two, and lo and behold, here we are. And since the inception of that, uh, what we've hoped is hopefully you guys are out in a party, in some kind of organization, and in your political education or reading group, you're reading along with these works. And when you have your discussions, we could be another voice, another source of input or context or another perspective in that group because the more voices, the better in those groups. Uh, let's say that's not the case. Let's say, you know, you guys are reading more shorter works or works more applicable to what you're focused on at the moment. Uh, then hopefully when you're reading this on your own, we can be that reading group. We can add that point of discussion. We can give you that extra input in context and other perspectives and help you really understand and get the most out of that work. And let's say that's not happening. Um, and either, you know, we're summarizing a work like we did with Capital or we're reading it more word for word, kind of an enhanced ebook like we're doing with this one. Whatever we could do to make these works more accessible to you because we want this theory out there animating your actions. And when theory is animated into actions, that's a political process called praxis. Uh, obviously, praxis does not exist without theory, and theory is completely useless without praxis. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Amen. As always, that being said, this is Mark's Madness Pod. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.